0: Hello. Thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I am professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host this program with Carrie Figger, Malcolm Keating, and Sarah Tyson. Today, my guest is Michelle Moody Adams. Michelle is Joseph Strauss, professor of political philosophy and legal theory at Columbia University. Professor Moody Adams is also a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Her research focuses on normative issues and political, moral, legal theory. Her new book, which has just been published with Columbia University Press, is titled Making Space for Justice, Social Movements, Collective Imagination, and Political Hope. Now, a standard way of proceeding in political philosophy is to begin with some formal conceptual inquiry. We might first try to figure out what justice, equality, autonomy, or freedom are, and then we may eventually begin thinking about how these goods might be pursued and achieved under real-world conditions. On this approach, Although social activism is perhaps, a necessary, is perhaps necessary to counteract the worst kinds of social deprivation, it's almost always regarded as premature from the point of view of philosophy. Because we're still debating what justice is, efforts to bring about justice are risky. Now, in Making Space for Justice, Michelle Moody Adams travels a different path. She begins by looking at social movements— and argues that they not only can teach us about what justice is, but that they often play a necessary role in clarifying normative concepts like justice. So as usual, there's a lot to talk about. But why don't we begin, as we normally do, with our guest. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Bob. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate the chance to talk about making space for justice. Well, wonderful. I really enjoyed reading the book. Um, you know, we usually begin these interviews uh, with uh, asking the author to uh, to share a little bit uh, uh, about uh, him or herself. So can you tell us a bit about yourself?
1: Absolutely. So I'll start by t- telling you something about a poem that was very influential in shaping my understanding of what I do in philosophy. It's a poem called Sometimes by the Poet Mary Oliver, a passage in which she offers what she calls instructions for living. And they come down to three. First is pay attention, be astonished, and then tell about it. And I ha- I have to say, I think of myself as fortunate for having had an upbringing that gave me the gift of wonder, the capacity really to be astonished that Oliver's talking about, and to hold on to that sense of wonder even in times of challenge. I actually think that's one of the reasons I ended up in philosophy, some people, with my temperament and my kind of orientation in the world, might have chosen a religious vocation, and in fact, I almost became a, a minister. But at a pivotal uh, moment in my childhood, actually in my early adulthood, I should say, a philosophy called instead, and it called while I was sitting in a college course uh, at Wellesley, where I was an undergrad, a college course on Plato's Dialogues. During a discussion in particular of Plato's Symposium. Now, I'll I'll say very quickly that it wasn't until much later that I came to understand why I eventually accepted the call. Um, One afternoon during graduate school, while I was rereading Plato's Theotetus, I had to pause for a while over this wonderful passage where Socrates says, You know, philosophy begins in wonder. And then I realized at that moment that. That's why I was called. Um, I'll say briefly, I was born in Chicago. Um, I went to public schools all the way until college, where I was an undergraduate at Wellesley, did philosophy, went to Oxford University on a Marshall and did philosophy, politics, and economics there. And then um, did my PhD at Harvard under the direction of John Rawls. And uh, for that project, I wrote on David Hume's moral philosophy. And I'll just give one slight um, bit of a further elaboration. I think of my capacity for wonder really as the deepest source of my interest in what social movements do and and how they do it. Um, I remember being astonished in the early 1960s growing up as a small child in Chicago. And you'd see these news reports of protesters, civil rights protesters uh, remaining nonviolent you know, even while they were being beaten with clubs and so forth. Um, and I, I was just totally astonished at that. Um, the second of, of my three quick examples is that um, years later, actually maybe three decades later, I was totally amazed at the events that led to Nelson Mandela's release from prison. It's 1990. And then his eventual election in 94 as the first black head of state in South Africa, I just found that astonishing. And not just because of his political ascendancy, but after all the hardship he'd endured, he managed to perform all his responsibilities. Really, I think as a a leader with with, uh, grace, extraordinary grace and goodwill. And that remains something that I think of as important to what social movements ought to think about. But the final and third um, example, Bob, that really leads directly to the book the weeks after May 25th, 2020, so the weeks after the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, actually made me think I had lost my sense of wonder um, and that I'd be overpowered. Uh, I, I mentioned this actually in the acknowledgments that I'd be overpowered by anger and despair. And then all of a sudden I started realizing, uh, appreciating, if you will, the depth and breadth of all the protests, national and global that had been sparked by the events. And I thought, what's happening here? And suddenly the Mary Oliver quote started to, to resonate again with me. I thought, you know, maybe it's my responsibility to try and tell about it, as Mary Oliver might've urged, to say something, if I could, uh, philosophically rich about what was at stake. And I was fortunate one more way <laughs> that I'd been sitting with two unfinished book manuscripts. One was on Renewing Democracy, the other was on the role of imagination, and social movements in seeking justice. And at that stage, and in, in June of twenty twenty, really, it became clear which project I should try to complete first. So that's uh, I hope it, uh, a helpful introduction.
0: No, well, that's wonderful. You know, it's. Um... Uh, I, I'm a failed, uh, I'm a failed classicist. <laughs> and so, uh, uh and so, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always intrigued when I find out that you know, people have their, their entry point into philosophy was, uh, was, was by way of Plato. Um, uh, I think a lot of us, uh, share that, that, that uh, share something of that common sort of, uh, backstory, um. Good. Um so l- let's talk about the book, you know. I, this is a, you know a, a fabulous book. Really really enjoyed reading it. Um and thought it was just rich with um philosophical insights of a kind that are you know derived from um from sources that are, I think, and you've convinced me of this, I think are not often carefully enough attended to by political theorists. Um, so um, l- let's begin right there then. This is sort of where the, the, the book begins with the, the methodological shift uh, that your, that your book uh, advocates and then, and, and makes. You begin with the thought that investigating the activities and methods of social justice movements um can inform (laughs) and eventually uh, transform are uh, the conceptual tools that we bring uh, to uh, um, to our efforts to address um, sort of fundamental qu- normative questions in political philosophy? Um, that strikes me as an important methodological shift, a uh, of, of reversal. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit more about that 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 sort of that 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 sort of sh- that that change in 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 how we might proceed as political philosophers? Absolutely. So the
1: methodology that you've just been referring to actually has what I think of as three main elements. Uh, The first is a commitment, which I hope seems to run through the entire uh, project. Deep commitment to an essentially pragmatist approach to moral and political inquiry, inspired mainly by uh, John Dewey, but to a lesser extent also by William James. And um, I genuinely believe that um, the lessons they've taught us, that the pragmatists have taught, are that philosophers, though they can be useful in moral and political inquiry, are not authoritative um, in that inquiry and certainly not authoritative in the efforts we need to undertake to solve moral and political problems. So I start right off challenging the idea of some, you know, stark epistemic divide between ordinary citizens and philosophers. Um, and I also had been moved in the, in early in my reading. This is some 1980s, I think, a book by Michael Walzer, Interpretation and Social Criticism, which, which contained this very provocative statement where he says, insofar as we can recognize moral progress, it's more a matter of workmanlike social criticism, that's his phrase, and political struggle. Rather than what he calls paradigm shattering um, philosophy. So that pragmatist approach seemed important. But the second um, element of what convinced me to make the shift you describe is that I'd become convinced of the truth of an approach that social theorists have called the cognitive approach to social movements. Um, Ron Eierman and Andrew Jameson are two of the best known defenders of this view. And I, by this, I simply mean. That you, we must acknowledge that social movements are often generating very deep insights about political life and about its moral underpinnings, um, which can deepen social understanding but also enrich theoretical reflection. And so I spent some time at various points in the book trying to analyze the insights that I believe emerge. They come from things like movement policy proposals and manifestos. You might find them in um, autobiographies or reflective essays that are written by movement participants. Um, I think documentaries and journalistic accounts that are authored by external observers help. But I also acknowledge that some of what you are best able to extract in the way of insights usually emerge from the writings of so-called organic intellectuals. That's a phrase as you know from Antonio Gramsci. And I think they helped to generate a deeper reflective understanding of a movement's commitments and contributions. But finally, the third main appeal um, was that I had been very um, astonished, if you will, <laughs> by a couple of moves that both Judith Sklar and Iris Young make. Judith Sklar in a book called The Faces of Injustice, which I don't think has gotten nearly enough attention. And then, I agree with you there. I'm, I'm glad you think. I think it's a wonderful yeah. little book. Yeah. And then yeah. Iris Young's uh, work primarily in justice and the politics of difference. And then for me later, the book Inclusion and Democracy. They do. They make two assumptions that I think are important. One is that you cannot understand what justice demands unless you have a rich understanding of injustice, and that means actually looking into the faces of injustice, to use Sklar's phrase. And But secondly, that you can't develop a proper understanding of injustice until you seriously consider the experience of injustice and take seriously the, the considered judgments, if you will, of people who've been subject to it. So I think of those three um, sort of prongs um, of methodological interest as shaping the shift I'm making in the book.
0: Well, that's fabulous and, and um, uh, very elucidating uh, in, in, uh, in, in ways that. Um, uh, are present in the book, but but, but go a little bit further, and, and you know the the I think that the the pragmatist insight about uh, experimentation. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> is 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 really key here, right? Because if you you know if you take that uh, you know that that sort of stock Dewey and uh, uh, principle that you know. Inquiry is not viewing the world is not trying to get the right lens through which to picture things, but it is about sort of getting your hands dirty and messing around with things and seeing what happens and, and in directed ways then it does look like um, moral inquiry um, it has to become. A, um, uh, a an endeavor that begins by taking seriously the practitioners <laughs> uh, uh, the, the, the practical the, the practice of trying to make the world better, right? Absolutely. I would second not just the sentiment itself but the way in which you
1: you phrased it. I completely agree.
0: Oh, fabulous. Um, I'm glad to hear that. Um, so um, having made this uh, I think deeply compelling, uh, 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 methodological move. The, um, the, the book then proceeds, um, and it's, um, it broke it up into three parts and, um, first three chapters, which comprise the first part, um, presents a conception of social movements. And I found this also deeply compelling because, um, uh, that social movements are things to be conceptualized. <laughs> uh, it was. Um, uh, 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 uh. It struck me as, as an important philosophical insight that we need to say something philosophical about what they are. Um, so you say that um, you first say what social movements are and then you demonstrate how they contribute both to democracy and to ongoing endeavors uh, uh, for moral inquiry and just sort of forging moral concepts and, and refining them. So can you explain that what you think they, what you think mo- the social movements are and the contribution that they make to democracy and to moral inquiry? Yes. Um, So
1: I'll start by giving what we'll hope will be a concise definition. Um, For me, a social movement is a sustained and organized endeavor in what I call, borrowing from uh, social theory, extra-institutional contentious politics. And I'll give a brief definition of that later. But through their uh, organized endeavors, they do one or more of the following things. So they might assert An unaddressed need. They might um, demand attention to some insufficiently acknowledged interest, um, or they might thoroughly make a claim of unacknowledged dignity or worth, usually of some marginalized or excluded group, but also sometimes of a project uh, in the world that's not taken seriously. And the goal is to change relevant institutions policies and practices and it's really that last sentence that last phrase that helps us understand why it's genuinely politics even though it is often not taking place within political institutions so it's extra institutional um and the the contentious part is that they make um demands of various kinds or claims that can generate um Disagreement amongst the people to whom they are speaking, but that concept of contentious politics actually initially developed by a sociologist named uh, Charles Tilly, and over the years he and various co-authors have refined the phrase. Um, one of the things I, I like to stress here is that that label contentious politics isn't appropriate only to social movements of the sort I discuss. You know, um, rebellions. <laughs> Riots, upbringings, even revolutions, also count as uh, contentious politics, but they don't have the structure, the organized collective, yet non-institutional activity that's asking government or political institutions to change something. Um, let me let me just say a few more things by way of distinguishing different kinds of social movements. In the book, I distinguish between what I call progressive or constructive movements which are essentially seeking to expand the circle of people to whom justice applies. I distinguish those from uh, what I call either backlash or counter movements that are mostly seeking to contract the circle. Um, A lot of the time in the book, I'll just say social movements, and sometimes I'll use the synonym progressive where I need to distinguish, but that distinction is always in the background. Um, And then one further kind of clarification before we talk a little bit more about the aims of the three chapters in part one, I talk not just about movements like the civil rights movement or the women's movement or the United Farm Workers, for instance, that are trying to make societies already purporting to be democratic better, so movements seeking, seeking social reform, but I'm also looking maybe to a lesser extent, but also looking at movements seeking to create democracy where it does not exist, especially um, the Velvet Revolution in the former Czechoslovakia, and to a lesser extent, um, the Arab Spring, and and I would add South African apartheid, or the the movement against it. Um, And so the main aims of the chapter that's really trying to elaborate on this um, definition are defined... uh, in part one. First of all, I I talk about social movements themselves and I give various examples and how they organize themselves, uh, how they relate to other kinds of political projects. Um, In in the second chapter, um, I talk a lot about um, what social movements can teach us about the moral underpinnings of democracy. And this is important because I think most social movements, either the reform varieties or those that are seeking uh, to uh, do away with some kind of authoritarianism, they are actually always assuming that democratic institutions um, will, in the end, be the institutions most likely to support a robust realization of justice. Um, and so, I, I have this Deweyan model or Deweyan ideal, I'll say, of democracy from a wonderful 1939 essay called Creative Democracy, The Task Before Us. Um, Probably
0: the best thing he ever wrote, it, don't you marvelous. think? <laughs> and, you know,
1: you can still, Bob, you can still go back to it and find some really um, provocative and challenging claim that then allows Absolutely. you to think more deeply about democracy. But my favorite line is the one that contains this definition. D- democracy is a, uh, what we could create is a free and humane experience. In which all share and to which all contribute. And I think that's such a rich definition. I don't know that I get all the that's possible to mine from it in the book, but I think it's a wonderful um, place to start and thinking about what democracy is.
0: Fabulous. So let me just uh, sort of two two things come to mind. Um, so the the conception of social movement. Just to pick up on Dewey again. So it it does sound like it's a uh, your conception of social movements is inspired by uh, the, the account of publics, right? Yes, <laughs> in the public and its problems. Absolutely okay, g- good. Um, uh, but also because you 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 emphasize this in the book, and I, I, I want to make sure that um, our listeners uh, get to hear you say a little bit about it you know, your conception of social movements, particularly the progressive social movements as you define them, you know, it's, I think it's important that you stress that. So we, we sometimes think of social activist uh, projects, social movements, maybe more broadly as disruptions, <laughs> right? But it seems to me, your view is, well, but the, dis- the point of the disruption is to clarifier, to bring into view um, something that has been overlooked about democracy. Disruption is not not, not, not the point. The point is actually something closer to um, calling to attention, something that's not fully yet legible about democracy's requirements of a broader culture. Would that be right?
1: That's absolutely right. It's very helpful um, sort of articulation of a background assumption related to that point, is that it was important for me as somebody thinking about those disruptions to stress that many social movements are actually court sort of exemplars of collective rationality. In fact, maybe most of them, um, they're not intrinsically impulsive or intrinsically susceptible to violence and destructiveness. That doesn't mean that some movements like the movement against apartheid don't occasionally need to rely on violence. But, you know, they, the model of, of kind of social group activity that the 20th century began with was shaped by a late 19th century um, writer named Gustave Le Bon, a, a very famous book called The Crowd, in which he's kind of confident that, well, that crowds are dangerous, and they're the things that make themselves felt Um, as a kind of social presence when your society is about to be destroyed. And my argument is sometimes, in fact, maybe a lot of the time, social movements can, in fact, be a way of reinvigorating in a very constructive way a society that might be basically good, but where there are deep um, problems in regard to how people are treated, no matter who they are, um, that the movement Needs to exist in order to inform us of.
0: Right. Um, so it, 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 the, the way you're just speaking sort of reminds me of uh, it, it, uh, of uh, Martin Luther King in the letter from Birmingham Jail when he talks about it's the, you know the point of the nonviolent resistance is 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 to create tension in the community so that something can be seen that has been you know so, so that so that injustice can be seen right it's not merely making demands on the community it's not merely um uh, 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 resisting uh, um, uh, segregation uh, uh, policies, although it does involve all that, it's doing those things for the sake that, for the sake of bringing to attention something that has been all too conveniently
1: <laughs> occluded. Is that right? Absolutely. There are varieties of that claim in theorists, you know, as diverse as Ronald Dworkin and, and uh, John Rawls, but we need to remember that they. Social movements can actually play a corrective role, and that their corrective role um, can succeed often because they are actually embodiments of the rationality that we're actually ignoring. I think it's very Socratic. Um, it's you know, in fact, in those passages in the letter that you're thinking. I think most directly about he actually cites the influence of a kind of Socratic um, notion of you know the gadfly on the neck of Athens. It's a great city, but it sometimes needs to be awakened in some very important way. Now I do talk about other kinds of movements that are not uh, is that don't function essentially in that way. And I think they can still be collectively rational. But, you know, Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia, for instance, wasn't necessarily doing this very same thing. There was an effort to to introduce a dramatic change in the structure of society
0: itself. Right, right, right. Fabulous. So, um, at the close of chapter three, um, so you argue, you, you you give, I think, a deeply compelling. Again, I really <laughs> like this book. In case it's not, uh,
1: so deeply compelling. <laughs> I'm so I'm so flattered <laughs> and gratified, really. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, a deeply compelling uh, um, picture um, uh, analysis of 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 you know what injustice is. You said that injustice is a failure of humane regard for persons. Um, again, I found that deeply compelling. So can you fill in some of the details about you know what you mean by the the humane regard Absolutely. for persons and, and its failure?
1: Yes, I, it's one of the central concepts in the book, I think as you've surmised, I think of it as a combination of respect for the human capacity for rational agency and what I call compassionate concern for the human capacity to suffer. And this was very important for me. I struggled with how to phrase this and how to justify my claim that it was an insight coming from social movements. I think the problem is that in certain um, debates in philosophy, there's been a tug of war between those who think we should give moral priority to respect for agency and those who think we should give priority to the capacity for suffering. And I think social movements in a range of activities and projects have shown us that, in fact, not only do we need to try to combine them, but they're not fundamentally incompatible. It's true that one, the uh, the respect for agency, has a morally distancing effect. Um, you know, you're it's about not interfering and not intervening and not coercing, and the idea of compassionate concern has a a kind of moral connectedness at its core, but I believe that uh, we're being asked by um, the most uh, successful social movements to realize that those things can come together. I don't claim to have some algorithm for exactly how to strike the balance in regard to, certain, to different kinds of social problems or concerns about justice and injustice, but I think that need to strike a balance uh, is critical. And let me add one more thing. There's also a battle in philosophy, although I've discovered lately that it's also in history, it's also, you know, cultural studies, between the idea of there being a common or universal humanity that's possessed by individuals, no matter who they are, uh, humanity that institutions and uh, ordinary people alike have a duty to respect. And on the other hand, thinkers like Iris Young, for instance, who want to reject what she calls it this un- enlightenment ideal because out of fear, rather, that it may be suppressing diversity, that it may be demanding conformity to standards that ignore the differences that can obtain between people. And I actually want to say I think there is a way um, to define humane regard in a way that doesn't have to ignore difference. I think it's central to the work, for instance, of the American civil rights movement. I think it's central to 19th century abolitionism. I've argued, as I do in fact in the book, that it's tempting to think that um, certain kinds of radical feminism, for instance, the the feminism defended by someone like Catherine McKinnon um, might be uh, a statement of a, a kind of resistance to the common humanity idea But there's a wonderful passage in the afterword to McKinnon's um, Feminism and Unmodified. She's actually discussing the kinds of exchanges she tends to have with audiences. Um, When she's finished talking, people she said would come up to her and say, so what is feminism really? (laughs) I mean, this is how this claim is proceeded in the book. She says, well, it's the belief that women are human beings in truth if not in social reality. And that was very moving for me. I actually was astonished, in fact, the first time I I read it. And there are other philosophers who don't believe that she really means that. But I think it's clear from much of what she's written whenever she talks about what it means to really at the core to be a feminist, that it's about saying, treat women as human beings too. Um, And I think that humanity can't be captured by um, an idea that gives attention only to our agency and only to our kind of vulnerability to suffering. I think both are really
0: central to what it is to talk about what it is to be human. Fantastic. Um, So moving to part two of the book – so th- those chapters are devoted to showing how social movements can inform and refine and expand what you call the democratic imagination. <laughs> um, so this you say is uh, necessary um, for, as the, the title of the book, you know, making space for justice, right? Not not merely achieving justice, well, I shouldn't say merely, not, not only achieving justice or pursuing it, but making space for its pursuit. Um, Can you spell those ideas out for us about the the importance of of the the collective imagination for democracy?
1: Imagination is critical. And I happen to think it's critical in many domains of human concern, not just in moral and political um, projects that we undertake. But a basic presumption I'm making is the idea that um, communities, political communities are not actually rendered stable by rational consensus on principles alone, that we need some other kind of glue that unites us, um, especially as these anthropologists Benedict Anderson writes, especially in circumstances where a community is just too large for people to have sort of consistent face-to-face contact. And I think that social movements in a variety of ways anticipated a very central idea that Benedict Anderson articulates in his book, Imagine Communities, that the stability of political communities is dependent on developing what he calls a deep horizontal comradeship. Um, But it's made possible, this comradeship, by the capacity to imagine certain kinds of connections between people, in particular connections that display a commitment to um, the idea of shared sacrifice. But the other way in which the concept of imagination starts to be relevant here is um, linked to an idea developed by uh, Charles Taylor in the book Modern Social Imaginaries where he says that collective understandings that shape any uh, given way of life are mainly preserved in and by various products of imagination, images, civic art, and artifacts of remembrance, you know, symbolic representations of a national identity like a flag and certainly various myths and legends um, that we think of as maybe part of a founding story. The together, the amalgamation of all these things helps to preserve a society's sense of who they are and what norms and values keep them together. And I, I don't say this as explicitly in the book as I probably could have, but I actually think that social movements have anticipated The point from Benedict Anderson about constituting communities through imagination and the point from Taylor about the understanding that then allows us to move forward over time being also rooted in imagination. So I spend a lot of time in part two um, arguing that we can't really understand what most social movements are doing unless we appreciate that in addition to familiar things like boycotts and sit-ins and marches and, and such, they've been trying to reshape or revise, sometimes quite dramatically even transform a given social imaginary. Um, and so I discuss in, the, in that part of the book what I consider three um, main forms of activism that are uh, attempt to reshape a social imaginary, aesthetic, activism, um, language activism and
0: narrative activism
1: um, and maybe maybe we can say more about each of those
0: uh. yeah 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 well let's get to that in a second so I, I was reminded um, on my on my walk uh, into um, campus this morning I, I, I walked to, to work here in Nashville <laughs> um, I, I saw a piece of graffiti that's new in oh. in my neighborhood, okay. uh, and it's the it was some. I, I romantically, you know, think of some you know angsty teenager having uh, graffitied uh, the the anarchist slogan, right? <laughs> a better world is possible. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, I I, I saw it and I, I I I I thought of your book. It's like, oh, that's the appeal to the imagination, Absolutely. right? Envisioning a better world is part of the Is part of what social movements are about.
1: It's absolutely critical. Uh, Maybe it'll be helpful here to say in a concise way what I mean by imagination. Yes, Um, that would be great. I understand it as a complex and heterogeneous set of capacities that allow us to generate new images, experiences, ideas, Stories, etc., that pre- present unfamiliar possibilities and, and unfamiliar perspectives, but that can also stimulate novel reflection on what we take to be uh, familiar and and what is actual in the world. So it can look forward in a novel way, and it, it can look at the present and try and understand it or reconceive it in some novel way. Um, and it's important for me that it is a heterogeneous set of capacities. Um, social movements have taught us, I think, that um, there's a wide array of activities and contexts in which imagination can be exercised itself, but also a broad range of cognitive, I'll say perceptual and affective capacities that are relevant to particular, particular projects that involve the exercise of imagination. And so I think that um, the heterogeneity heterogeneity (laughs) of imagination and its products. has actually been central to the work that social movements do.
0: Yeah. Let me see. So one other dimension um, that, that is in the, that is in the book not heavily thematized uh, on this, on this issue um, is the power of social movements to dislodge uh, in a broader culture and, a view of the status quo that renders the status quo necessary, or conceptualizes or conceives of the status quo as necessary and unalterable. Is that right?
1: You too? are so right. That point is implicit all the way through the book. But I have only lately started thinking. I should say, initially, I thought this book would contain a kind of challenge to contemporary political thinkers who are appealing to the concept of ideology to kind of talk about what sustains injustice, even when decent people seem to not want to be unjust. Um, why is it they don't see that there's injustice and that they don't seek to challenge it, et cetera. I didn't take that project on because I, re- I wanted to do other things that I thought <laughs> might be particularly to talk more about the backlash counter movements than I initially inspected, but I'm actually working on a paper right now, about the use of narrative, um, the retelling of dom- socially dominant narratives in ways that um, sort of force people that dis- to, to, re, uh, to relinquish conventional ways of understanding that might be the source of injustice, narratively speaking themselves, that if that capacity to dislodge, narrative understandings of experience that sustain injustice is critical. Um, I'm not as explicit about it. The place where it might have um, uh, seemed implicit in particular, I think, is chapter six, where I talk about narrative activism. But I spend so much time on what I consider a, a kind of preliminary phase of narrative activism, which I now call narrative self-reconstitution. I spend a lot of that. That's the role of 19th century slave narratives, for instance. But I also talk about reshaping um, histories, which is not about reconstituting the self, but reconstituting the stories we tell about the, the um, institutions and practices that have survived over time.
0: Fabulous. I, well, I look forward to the paper. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's then pick up the, so, um, You know, there are a few different sites that you discuss uh, uh, and and outline in the book of, of, you know, sites of political imagination. And as you mentioned, aesthetic and epistemic and linguistic and narrative, where there are these. uh, you know forms of activism that try to or that aim to um, reorder uh, uh, our aesthetic sense or epistemic uh, uh, concepts, uh, linguistic and and, and our, our, the narratives we implicitly adopt. Can you tell us a little bit about um, those different sites where imagination can be expanded?
1: Yes. Yeah, so the book talks about three main sites. There may, in fact, be others. I'm not claiming my um, scheme is in any way exhaustive, but I think these are three very uh, prominent varieties of activism that uh, tries to reshape social imaginaries. The first is aesthetic activism. And I have to say, it was that sense of being astonished at how broadly <laughs> the effort to tear down or at least challenge existing civic architecture became um, in the summer of 2020. I'd actually written about a a version of this or an instance of it, rather, um, when I'd been writing for some time on the um, problem of Confederate monuments. Part of that argument is kind of taken up in Chapter a four of the book, but it is this project, uh, aesthetic activism, of drawing on aesthetic imagination, which involves, of course, the you know perce- perception. It involves certain kinds of of concepts we have, etc., um, to challenge what the movements might see as stigmatizing civic art and architecture. And in fact, I just misspoke. I don't mean what they might see, what in fact is stigmatizing (laughs) um, civic art and architecture. And, um, you know, that's what's going on when people in 2015 began the Roads Must Fall movement in in South Africa. It's what has led people to challenge Confederate monuments and and Confederate flags as symbolic expressions of certain kinds of identities. Um, But in particular, I devote uh, time to this um, stigmatizing civic art and architecture. I think it teaches us a lot. What we should also remember, however, is that aesthetic activism can be used to create Civic art and architecture that can actually constructively reshape a social imaginary in all sorts of ways. Um, but I, I argue in that part of the book that s- social movements are actually showing us that politics, memory, and art are deeply intertwined, fundamentally intertwined, and people who say, oh, you're just trying to erase history when you challenge a Confederate monument are ignoring just how Deeply, those connections go. They're the same connections as I point out in the book that led, um, you know, uh, people in the uh, just before the um, American Revolution to try to destroy a statue of George III in, you know, down uh, in what would now be um, Battery Park. I think it is in Manhattan. Um, and so I think it's a it's a it's a central element of. Many of the social movements we've seen, you know, we we notice sometimes when a um, group of people have had some very profound rebellion or even a revolution that upends a way of life and reinstitutes a new form of political organization, one of the first things that will happen is that they take down the statues of the old regime. Um, You know, this happened, of course, in the French Revolution. I mean, it happens over and over. And those, projects of removing or covering or reframing um, existing civic art are really rooted in an understanding of the role of aesthetic imagination in conveying certain messages about who matters in society, why they matter, about what kinds of events we have um, a duty to commemorate, whose suffering counts and and whose suffering doesn't. Um, then there's language activism and chapter five is principally devoted to this, which I believe draws on very various cognitive and perceptual capacities that comprise what I call epistemic imagination. I don't think it's at work only in this project of language activism, but it is dominant in this project. And it's an effort to uh, l- language activism to challenge linguistic forms, words, phrases, um, you know, prefixes and suffixes like mis. And, um, it's, an, it's an attempt to challenge linguistic forms that seem to limit um, our understanding of human experience and sometimes even to distort perception of social reality and, and, and the effort, the point of challenging them is to open cult, uh, conceptual space, cultural space, to create new l- linguistic forms that are more consistent with humane regard. So I talk about the development uh, in the 1940s um, by Raphael Limkin of the concept of genocide. People knew there was a certain kind of crime against other human beings that was um, important both to name and to challenge and sometimes to punish, perhaps. Um, but there wasn't a concise way of capturing the idea of trying to eliminate a whole group of people and essentially attack their, their very humanity. And Raphael Lemkin, um actually comes up, he an international jurist who'd been working on these problems for a while, comes up with this concept that gives a name to a, a crime that Winston Churchill had once called a crime without a name. Uh, I talk about the development of the concept of sexual harassment, which emerges uh, as a kind of collective project over over several decades. Even though there's one moment in which the phrase comes to mind in, in a certain group, actually a group of women in a consciousness-raising session at Cornell. But the way for that concept to emerge had been prepared over time by by the efforts of many people. And then the third example I talk about. Um, is the use of the phrase "separate but equal" um, in um, certain laws that um, segregated public accommodations, particularly in the South, um, and by claiming that they were not somehow violating the Constitution because they could actually show them to be separate but equal? My argument in the in that chapter is that this, in fact, distorts. The reality, the social reality of racial segregation in the American South, um, and the only way to um, for people to acknowledge that would be for th- what's problematic about that phrase "separate but equal" to be understood. Of course, that didn't happen right away. It took you know another five decades uh, in the case of American constitutional law um, after the first challenge to that phrase, but. It's an effort to challenge linguistic forms, language activism is, um, as a way of opening up um, a kind of, uh, here it's conceptual space as well as perceptual space for justice. Then there's narrative activism, um, which I think um, is about as central to what all the social movements I discuss do as anything that I've mentioned so far, because here, um, social movements, both as collective groups and sometimes as individuals who then become taken up by the collective, um, it's drawing on our cognitive and perceptual capacities that shape our capacity to create stories, to create what we can call narrative schemes. It draws on narrative imagination to articulate narratives that reshape the social imaginary, um, if by effectively giving a new meaning to the ordinary experiences and observations uh, we'll have in the social world. And lately, I, I'm not as as straightforward about this in the book as I probably could have been, but I've always thought this that most narrative activism actually works not by telling. A totally new story. It might be telling secondary stories that are new. So, a 19th century slave narrative, say, an autobiography of Frederick Douglass, is it's telling his story in a new way, but he's telling it in a way that's meant to retell, ultimately, the American story, but to retell it in ways that get that kind of transform its meaning, um, and. Change the social consequences of the story. I was not quite as explicit in the book about that as I probably could have been, but I actually don't think someone like Frederick Douglass wants to totally reject the American story. He wants it to have room for a conception of people who are African descended and f- former slaves, etc., as people who are fully human. Um, I think that's true about the way feminism works when it's trying to, I think someone like Catherine McKinnon may be seeming to try to tell a new story. But in fact, she's trying to fit women into the stories, the socially dominant stories that um, shape our lives, but in the process, retelling it in a way that changes the meaning of the social roles around gender. Um, and and I, I hope that emerges in the book. I don't say that as clearly, um, but I think it's there. I think it's implicit in the argument there.
0: And then, oh, I, I think it's, it's clear.
1: Okay. And then I'll <laughs> yeah, just yeah. add briefly, some people would say, well, what about sympathetic imagination? I think that virtually all of the other forms of narrative activism will work only when social movements are effective at appealing to sympathetic imagination, just in general. Um, if your interest is social justice, if your interest is um, encouraging your society or demanding that your society do a better job of showing humane regard, um, you've got to be able to show the, the audience to whom you're making this argument what's unjust about particular failures of humane regard. That, I think, is where sympathetic, sympathetic rather imagination always comes in. Um, And that um, when we uh, think about the work that social movements are doing, so you talked about disruption and dislodging um, uh, uh, kind of conventional understandings, it's also trying to convey the humanity uh, in that kind of enlightenment sense, which I'm not going to shy away from as someone who thinks it does a lot of moral, important moral and political work, that it's Sympathetic imagination is critical to showing the failures of humane regard, but also to helping people think about social life in new ways to better realize it in institutions and practices.
0: Very good. Um, so, Michelle, you've been very generous with your time. Um, so I wanted to um, ask about, or ask you to, to, to talk a little bit about the the, the two chapters that, that, that complete the book um both which of which are about hope which is the, the the third item in the subtitle of the book political hope um so your chapter 7 is interested in um outlining and defending what you call constructive political hope and contrast it with a uh, a a a destructive uh, uh mimic <laughs> um and, and then the final chapter um uh, introduces the idea of civic grace as um, essential to sustaining uh, the political, uh, the uh, political hope of the kind that's necessary for progress. So putting those two things together, can, can you um, can you tell us a bit about constructive political hope and, and why civic grace is necessary to sustain it?
1: Absolutely. So let me just say very concisely what I mean by hope. Um, I think of it as in what's sometimes called the standard account in philosophy, as expectant desire. And it's a stance that combines wanting or desiring something to happen or be true with thinking that it could really happen or be true. It's not the same thing as optimism, which is in fact generally expecting that the good things will happen. That's not what hope is about. It's also different from wishful thinking, because I think you can wish for things that aren't possible. Um, but hope is always in the conceptual realm of possibility. I also add that, you know, there's a kind of ordinary object-oriented hope when you just hope you'll get an A on a paper. Um, I also talk about volitional dispositions where someone might be oriented in the world in a way that kind of is resilient and is not willing to give up in response to challenging uh, events. But then there's something I call an affective orientation um, that is um, really a way of standing, of existing, of positioning oneself in the world. And I think there's a form of hope, um, that constitutes such an orientation. Ordinary political hope, um, is a combination of object-oriented hope. I hope that I will get the, um, I hope I'll be able to, um, get the kind of career I've always dreamed of. Um, It's combined with also the volitional dispositions that kind of, particularly in stable societies with being resilient and um, not um, uh, wanting to destroy society when things don't go well. But for me, the most important kind of political hope is that positional sort is critical to the work that social movements do it's also critical in societies that are under various kinds of strains. Um, It's an ability to kind of work and be committed to something, work for something, not just because it's um, likely to succeed, but because you think it's the right thing to do. Um, And it's the kind of hope that sustains people, I think, through um, all kinds of even political upheaval. Um, And I want to say that there are uses of the language of hope that are in some ways disingenuous, because they are the kinds of things that in the, um, in the world are built on um, what I call dystopian stories, uh, sometimes racial resentment, um, loss, and fear of one's place in the world, a kind of xenophobic fear that somebody's taking your place. And I think it's important to distinguish the uses of the concept of hope in those contexts from the genuine hope that appeals to the kind of constructive stance that I described as positional hope. Finally, I'll just say that civic grace um, is a critical component of what I think of as the democratic civic ethos that it embodies the kind of hopefulness I treat it as the third kind, the positional hope. Um, but it's two has two elements. It's a consistent readiness, first, to extend civic goodwill to your fellow citizens, even some of whom may be determined political opponents. But it's also a willingness to treat their interests their agency and their moral standing with respect, but also to take seriously their capacity for suffering and pain. Um, And I think it's important that um, really at both ends of what we might call the political spectrum, we can sometimes fail in our um, uh, sort of moral requirements, if you will, um, in failing to understand how important that civic goodwill is uh, to uh, stable societies. But my favorite example of how potent civic grace can be uh, come, two examples actually come from the life of Nelson Mandela, which I, and I talk about these at various points. One of them is that 1990 release from prison, when he consents to be part of negotiations to try to end apartheid without a bloody civil war. And that's really one of the reasons he ended up getting the Nobel uh, co-recipient, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize. But then shortly after becoming the first black president, he offers this extraordinary gesture of civic grace, but also I think political hope um, with an unanticipated display of public support for the South African rugby team when they were playing in the finals of the Rugby World Cup in '95. It goes out on the field. It had been discussed and I'll say sort of choreographed beforehand, but the it was choreographed with civic grace, I think, in mind. It was rightly perceived by a vast more, uh, majority of South Africans, black and white, as a gesture of racial reconciliation and really an expression of hope for the moral renewal of South Africa. And I think the problem is when we're in the midst of political chaos, uh, as we hope won't be coming to our stores too soon. (laughs) um, But who knows? (laughs) In in democracies in particular, the possibility of civic grace is the thing we've got to hold on to as the thing that might help us um, uh, stave off the effects of a kind of wide political breakdown. Um, It's the opposite of destruction and despair. It's a way of standing ready to treat other people in your midst, even those you've never met, with humane regard. And I think in that that respect, it's critical to, to democratic institutions, but also social movements.
0: It might also be part of a diagnostic story one might tell about um, contemporary democracies, maybe of the kind that we're familiar with, right? Absolutely. There's a hint of
1: that. There's a hint of the story in particularly at the end of Chapter 7 and the beginning of Chapter 8, but there still could be much more diagnostic work uh, to do. I, I completely agree with you on that.
0: Well, Michelle, thank you uh, for your time today. It's been it's been a great pleasure uh, talking to you about this this fabulous new book. Thank you so much. And well, it's it's been my pleasure. Um, and to our listeners, um, thank you uh, for joining me uh, for my discussion, for joining us for our discussion. Uh, I've been talking to uh, Michelle Moody Adams. Uh, She's written a fabulous new book. It is titled Making Space for Justice, Social Movements, Collective Imagination, and Political Hope. Uh, I highly recommend the book to anybody who's interested in any of the themes that we've been discussing. It's uh, available now with Columbia University Press. Thank you for listening to New Books in Philosophy, and bye for now.